house church this past week, um, you, we, you know that we've been studying the end times and we've been studying a very challenging passage in Matthew. Um, and one of the questions that Pastor JP challenged us with this past week was in light of what the Bible urges us to be prepared for in the end times, how ought we to raise up the next generation? Because what we're studying is not just theory. What we're studying is reality. And this has massive implications to how we live our lives today. How we raise our families. How seriously we take uh, you know, fellowship. How seriously we take the word of God. as massive implications. Now, if you grew up in the church like I did. I went to church starting like second or third grade. Back then, I feel like there was some grace for us to live in some, like, measure of innocence. Youth group was about hanging out with your friends, was about, you know, pizza parties, and, um, you know, learning the guitar together. It was about, you know, just having fun together and just, you know, meeting with people that we enjoyed growing up with. Um, But in today's age... In today's world, in today's culture, we need more than just that. We need more than just gathering people together. Hopefully we love each other. Hopefully we have a great time together. And then we split and we go back to our own homes. We need something more than that. We need knowledge in the word. We need fortitude in our spirit. We need to know what it is that is up ahead. And this is the reason why... We've been studying this passage uh, in our house churches. It confronts us with the reality of what is coming ahead. And whether we know it or not, we need to be prepared. It has very practical applications. Can I challenge your notion of what it looks like to be a church that is equipped, prepared, and persevering? Because some things are no-brainers. Things like you better know the word for yourself. There's going to be, you know, people's love will grow cold in the end times. You know, people will be swayed by false teachings. There's going to be, you know, antichrist, all of that. And so some things are no-brainers. We need to study the scriptures. We need to have a grid for suffering. We need to have a grid for the world getting darker and darker while the church gets brighter and brighter. But one of the things that we seldom think about when we think, when we picture in our minds, what does an end times church look like? What does a persevering, prepared church look like? We seldom associate the word joy with this kind of church. We think, yeah, they're hardcore. They're super, like, you know, like gung-ho. They like know their stuff and they are strong. But we never think about they're a church that knows how to rejoice. We never think about that. But when we look at the Bible, case after case, and especially in the sermon series that we just started in the book of Philippians, we see a church that is able to go through the hardships and the struggles of being a persecuted church because of the joy that they have in Christ. Joy is everywhere in the book of Philippians. So we seldom think about joy as a mark of the persecuted and persevering church. But according to the Bible, and especially according to the book of Philippians, we see clearly that it is in front and center. While in chains, 
while being uncertain about what will happen next, while being unable to continue to do the work that he loves to do, we see how Paul, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, he rejoices, 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 and rejoices. So over the course of the sermon series, um, if, if we could show um, the outline, um, we, last week we talked about rejoicing the fellowship of the saints. What does it look like to find joy in the gathering of one another? Today we're going to be looking at rejoicing over afflictions. What does that look like to be able to find joy in Christ in the midst of suffering? And for the next few weeks, you're going to see there's many, many different reasons why we ought to rejoice in Christ. So today we'll be focusing on rejoicing over afflictions, and this is part of the picture of a persevering church. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to open up to Philippians chapter 1. Last week we went over the first half of Philippians chapter 1, and today we'll go through the second half. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. You guys remember the acronym that um, I share with you guys? Last week? No. Go with Pop-Tarts? No. God eats potato chips. Yes, God eats potato chips. It's very, uh, I've said it to myself so many, for so many years. It actually helps a whole lot. And so we are, God eats potato chips, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's just an easy way to remember that. All right, so open up to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30, and I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. So chapter 1, verse 12 to the, uh, to the end of the chapter, and it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former... Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live pressed Now, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith 
so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is a very heavy portion of this letter. Just as a reminder, the background of this letter, as filled with hope and filled with joy and filled with love as this letter is, this is a letter that is written from imprisonment to people who will likely face imprisonment themselves. And we see that Paul, although he is unjustly imprisoned for preaching the gospel, we see that he's rejoicing Rejoicing that the gospel is still moving forward. That even through his imprisonment, the gospel is still advancing. Now, I don't know about you guys. We've probably all gone through some measure of suffering. Because suffering hits us all. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, sooner or later, life will bring suffering. Life will do that. But fewer of us here have ever gone through a situation where we are not just facing suffering, but suffering that could have been avoided, but is being born for the sake of Christ. I don't know about you guys, but I would feel like, like, man, this is not fair. Isn't this for you, God? I understand suffering, but this is so unjust. Like how, how am I supposed to go through this when it's so unfair? We see the apostle Paul, not just unjustly suffering for the sake of the gospel, but we see through this passage that people are taking advantage of his suffering. People are seeing that he is in chains and the preacher down the street says, this is my chance. This is my opportunity to become the star. And they begin to preach. They begin to uh, proclaim the gospel because they see that Paul is in prison. He wants to get They want to get their own following. So we see that they're preaching the gospel out of envy and out of rivalry. And yet Paul rejoices even in that. Because to him, who cares, right? He's like, who cares? The gospel is being preached. Who cares? People are getting saved. Who cares who's the hero of the hour? Who is, you know, the, the, the one model that everybody wants to go after? Who gets the fame? Who gets the praise of man? Who cares who got, who has the mic at that moment? Who has the platform? As long as the gospel is being preached, as long as people are getting saved, as long as God is being glorified, who cares about who is getting the credit? Who cares? What does it matter? And this is such an interesting way to approach suffering. I don't know if I have that in myself. When I look at Paul, I just think he's crazy. 
I'm like, there's no way somebody wouldn't complain in this situation. There's no way that someone wouldn't get bitter in this situation. And yet we see the Apostle Paul, his joy, his perseverance, the glory that he has in the communion with Christ, all of that is so rooted and so grounded in the joy that he has in Christ that even these afflictions, they don't even register in his mind. He is just so overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving and what Christ has done in his life that he doesn't even care who gets the credit. He doesn't even care who's getting ahead, even at the cost of his suffering. These people are happy that he's accused and he's being beaten and he's been in prison. They're benefiting from his suffering and they're getting ahead in life. They're reaping the benefits of his pain. And yet Paul continues to rejoice. His life It draws people to the beauty and to the worth of Christ. Have you ever seen someone live this kind of life? Like where you're like, I don't understand. Like you're going through all this stuff in your life. And yet it feels like you're unshaken in your faith. It looks like your joy is just coming from elsewhere. Where is this joy coming from? And so in this portion of Paul's letters, we see him rejoicing over afflictions. Rejoicing over sufferings for three different reasons that we're going to talk about today. And the first reason that we rejoice over our afflictions is because God is working through you. Whether you see it or not. God is working through you. Paul has lived this over and over and over and over in his life. Time after time, God has used Paul's afflictions to reach others with the saving grace of the gospel. When shipwrecked, God uses that instance to save souls and to heal bodies. When imprisoned, God uses Paul to preach the gospel to the guards. When he's beaten, he shows people through his pain, through his suffering, that Christ is worthy of these beatings. So we see time after time in Paul's life how God uses his afflictions. It's not despite his afflictions. It's because of his afflictions that God is glorified and he works through him. See, when we are in pain, in our human nature, we become very self-absorbed. We're not thinking, well, God is using this to bless someone else. That's not what we're thinking, right? We're thinking, woe is me. We're thinking, why God? Why did it have to happen to me? When we go through suffering, especially unjust suffering, we become very self-focused. We become very self-absorbed. The last thing we're thinking is God is using this and God is working through this situation for his glory and I ought to rejoice in my afflictions. That's the last thing that comes to mind. There was a man in the book of Genesis where we see this playing out as well. He had been given grand promises for his life and his name was Joseph. I don't know if you guys remember the story, Genesis 50. He was giving all these grand promises for his life, but tragedy after tragedy, misfortune after misfortune, everything in his life looked like it was going the opposite direction. His brothers, they sold him to slavery. He was falsely accused and imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. He was used for his gifting and then left as forgotten by others until the moment that God revealed his ultimate plan for his life. 
even in the midst of all the pain. The purpose for the pain in his life was that God would use him to save an entire nation from famine. And God used this vessel of pain and affliction and suffering. And why me, God? And what happened to your promises? He used this vessel of affliction to bring glory to himself and to bring salvation to a people. God used it for good. What Joseph says in the moment of revelation, when he sees where everything in his life was pointed to, what all the pain, what all the suffering was all for, what he says in that moment is that what evil his brothers meant against him by setting off this chain reaction of misfortune, God used for good. God used it for good. Because did you know that God doesn't just use the good things in our lives to bring glory to himself? He uses the good, the bad, and the ugly. God uses everything in our lives. Now, maybe your life doesn't look this dramatic. It doesn't look like your brother sold you to slavery. It doesn't look like you were falsely accused and imprisoned for a crime you didn't commit. Maybe your life doesn't look this dramatic, and it doesn't need to. But if you think for a moment that God can't use your sickness, God can't use your financial struggles, God can't use your family crises, God can't use your problems at work, If you think for a moment that God can't use those things for his glory and for your good, then you are mistaken. There is no struggle without purpose and without fruit. You never know. You might be paving the way for someone else. You never know. You might be encouraging someone else through your story, just like we even heard earlier today from Will's story. You might be setting yourself up for a breakthrough down the line that you have no idea about. You might be blessing those who come after you, whether you know it or you don't. Nothing goes to waste. God is taking what is meant for evil and using it for good in your life. And for this reason, we as believers, when things are going right in our lives and when things are not, we still have a reason to rejoice. God gives purpose to our pain. God gives purpose to our suffering. And God is working through you, whether you see it immediately or not. God will not let anything go to waste. Second reason why we rejoice over afflictions It's because God isn't just working through you, but God is also working in you. God is working in you. Sometimes the real mess that God is trying to fix is not out there somewhere. It's in here. The real mess that he needs to deal with. The real things that he needs to rearrange. He needs to purify. He needs to refine. It's actually in here. It's inside me. Sometimes God will use challenging circumstances around me to uproot pride in my heart. He'll use frustrating situations to expose my impatience and my arrogance. He'll use unexpected inconveniences and challenges to deliver me from complacency and stagnancy and lukewarmness. He'll use conflict 
to reveal my self-dependency and my need for control. Time after time, situation after situation, God will use afflictions to do something in me. He's not just trying to fix things out there. He's trying to fix something deep within me. It's funny how we as Christians, we throw around this term, I want to be more Christ-like. Jesus, would you make me more like you, right? We toss this around kind of flippantly, but we don't want suffering, right? We want it to somehow happen magically, right? Kind of like osmosis, like something passive that just happens over time. But we don't want suffering. We don't want inconvenience. We don't want any ruffled feathers. We don't want, we don't want any of that. We just want change to happen overnight effortlessly. But that's not often the way that God works. It's been so frequent in my life when I feel God answering a prayer of mine. If I'm praying, God, I need greater faith. The way that he'll answer that is he'll give me a situation that requires faith. Amen. Yes. When you're praying, God, I need a greater heart to love others. He'll purposefully surround you with people that are going to be hard to love. He'll do that. He's like, I'm answering your prayer, Susie. You said you wanted to grow in Christ-likeness. You said you wanted to grow in love for others. Well, here's your chance. I'm not going to give you someone easy to love because anybody can do that. I'm not pointing at you specifically. But <laughs> you're a joy. You're a joy. <laughs> yes. God will surround me with not people like Jacob, people that will be hard to love. And that's going to be my opportunity to grow. This is God using suffering. He's using inconvenience. He's using discomfort to do something in me that can't come any other way. He is doing something deep within me. And sometimes we do the math in our own minds and it's like, is it worth it? You know, all that pain, all that discomfort, all that, is it worth it? And God's answer to that is yes, every time. Yes, every time. If it makes you more Christ-like, yes, it's worth it. If it makes you lean on him more, yes, it's worth it. If it makes you trust him like you've never trusted him before, yes, it's worth it. And we are all going to go through situations in life that are going to stretch us. Even when we feel like, man, okay, I've arrived finally, right? There's always going to be situations that are going to stretch us beyond our limit. And that is the point. We're supposed to feel that discomfort. We're supposed to feel at the end of a rope. We're supposed to feel like we don't have the answers all the time. And our life is not in our control. Because God is trying to teach us something that he can be trusted He can be leaned on. He is the one who has our life in his hands. He is trying to do something deep within us that cannot come any other way. So in you, Philly, can you rejoice over afflictions? Because God is working in you. He's doing it. He's doing it through these challenges, through these sufferings. He's doing a deep work within you. Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that God works All things, not just some things, not just the good things, not just the things that we can make sense of, but he works all things, the confusing things, the things that we feel like, I don't know how any good can come from this. Like, I don't know how this can, this can bless anybody down the road. Even those things, it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him for called according to his purpose. You know, this past week, 
our staff, we had lunch with um, the staff from here, Heart House. And they've known us only for a little over two years. They saw us when we first came in, we were still very, in a very broken place, needing a lot of healing as a community. And we've been just so blessed to walk alongside them and have them welcome us in with open arms. And as we were having lunch this past week, one of the observations that Pastor Peter, the, the senior pastor, he shared was, he said this very genuinely, he said, Nephili is such a special group of people. Like I see so much passion, so much zeal and love for God. And it's so beautiful to see that in a church that has gone through suffering and come out the other side. Isn't that such a beautiful testimony? A lot of the suffering that we went through as a church, you know, I don't think I would want to do that ever again. But what I do know is that God has used that to do something in us as a community. Our faith has become more anchored in who God is and not just external circumstances around us. We have been so challenged in our faith to examine where we are, examine where our church is going, and knowing what is important. Through our suffering, I believe God reaped an incredible harvest here at our church. There's a faith that is refined in the fire where impurities and dross need to be taken out. And the only way to get there is through fire. So if your circumstances are making you feel like God is trying to destroy you, let me encourage you with this. He's trying to refine you. He's trying to strengthen you. He's trying to deliver you from things you didn't even know you needed deliverance from. So rejoice over afflictions because God is working through you and God is working in you even now. Now, the last reason why we rejoice over affliction is because you are in good company. This is what Apostle Paul tells us through this letter. When you are in pain, the enemy tells you that you are the only one, that no one will understand you, that everyone else is fine and you are the problem. But if this is true for Paul, it is true for me and true for you as well. You are not alone in your pain. You're in good company. I challenge you, take the time someday to talk with one another and share your testimonies. You'll very, very quickly realize that God has done amazing things in people's lives through suffering. You are in good company. Even in this congregation, even the people whose lives look so well put together, so polished, so like, oh, they're so, they're always so happy. So like their lives look like they're so smoothly going according to plan. In this congregation, there are incredible, incredible stories of God's faithfulness through afflictions. People that God has carried through the death of loved ones. People that God has carried through financial crisis. People that God has carried through mental health issues, through abandonment, through chronic disease, through miscarriages, through getting fired from your job, through family crisis, through all kinds of afflictions. God has carried us 
through all these things. And when we go through suffering, instead of just looking at our own pain and feeling like we are alone in this, I encourage us to look around and realize that we are in good company. According to Hebrews 12, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that spur us on in this journey of faith. When we feel outnumbered, when we feel like we are all alone, when we feel hurt or jaded, when we wonder if we have what it'll take to make it through, we must remember that there have been those who have gone before us, those who have paved the way, those who have loved Jesus through pain and loss and danger and persecution and even death, and their stories remind us of the power of God's grace over our lives. This is why we rejoice in our afflictions. We're not alone. We are in good company. We find camaraderie. We find understanding and empathy in knowing that we are surrounded by saints that have walked the same walk and have loved Jesus through it. But most importantly, most importantly, if you are afflicted, rejoice in good company because Jesus is there. Jesus himself is there. One of the most powerful testimonies I've heard most recently is someone who had grown up Christian his whole life. He had gone to Bible college and he had, you know, done the whole thing. Like he, you know, was youth group leader and all of that. And there was a point in his life when he decided to walk away from the Lord. He said, you know what? I think... I've reached the end of my rope. I think I'm done with this Christianity thing. And I think even if my family is against this, and even if they'll never understand me, I think, I think I'm just going to walk away from the Lord. And he said that in the moment that he made that decision to walk away from the Lord, and he said out loud, God, I don't believe in you anymore. I don't think you're here. He said he felt the Holy Spirit speak to him so strongly. And he said, even there, Jesus will find you. You know how Psalm 139, it says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heights, there you are. If I make my bed in the depths, even there, you will find me. Even there, in moments of forsakenness, in moments where you feel fully abandoned, the one person that you know that can sympathize with that and can empathize with that is Jesus because he himself went through that. He went through forsakenness by God the Father. And even there, you're going to find Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, even there in your forsakenness, even in your darkest moments, you're going to find Jesus there. Friends, if the Christianity that you adhere to is only ease, is only sunshine, is only mountaintop to mountaintop, it's only smooth sailing, then it's not Christianity. I know it's not only affliction, right? I know it's not only suffering. But here's my desire. I burn for the world to know that the Christ that I know and I love and I follow is one who's worth suffering for. He is worth it. The world needs to hear about this Jesus that is worth suffering for. Let me ask you this question. As a church, what has happened to our witness 
to the world? What has happened to our message as Christians? How come it doesn't look any different from the world? It's just one more route to happiness. It's just one more way to something better, more comfortable, more successful, more respectable, more predictable. It stopped being the straight and narrow path. It stopped being the road less traveled. It stopped being the pick up your cross and follow me way. And if that's the Christianity that you want to believe in, you can spare yourself a trip to church. You know, you can just go to a nice cafe and read a good self-help book and follow media, uh, social media accounts that will boost your self-esteem. And you can surround yourself with positive people and you can eat and drink and be merry and just live a carefree life. You can just do that. But that's not all Christianity is. Christianity is so much greater than that. Like I'm, I'm a big proponent for the need of self-awareness, the need for counseling, the importance of health of the body, mind, and soul. I'm a big proponent of that. I actually studied psychology as an undergrad. I took Christian counseling courses you know, in seminary. And I myself have gotten counseling sessions in recent years. So I'm not knocking on all that. But Christianity and the gospel goes beyond self-care. It goes beyond self-awareness. And that being the aim of everything. I am tired of a self-focused, therapeutic, soothing, just pat yourself on the back and boost your self-esteem. And you are the victim, but you're never the sinner kind of theology. I'm tired of that. That's not biblical. Because that theology is bankrupt. It has no real answers for suffering. It has no real purpose for our lives and no glory that points to someone else other than you. That kind of theology feels so good in the moment, but it leaves you feeling empty. It's a very thin, shallow kind of Christianity that saves no one, that numbs the conscience, that clouds the mind, and that cuts you at the knees when the real storms of life come. You have nothing to hold on to. When those gut-wrenching moments of pain come into your life, you have nothing of substance to lean on, nothing that rings true and deep, nothing that keeps you rooted and grounded and anchored when you get tossed to and fro by the waves. You have nothing to stand on in those moments. Let me tell you the Christianity that I believe in and that I preach of is a, is a Christianity that leads me to glory through the pain. It leads me to victory through the fight. It leads me to a deep-seated, no one can steal this joy away from me through affliction. The Christianity that I believe in is a Christianity with a cross at the center. A call to die to yourself that you might truly live. A reward that is far Greater, far higher, far more glorious than any comfort or than any reward that this life could give you. The Christianity I believe in preaches on affliction and glory because Jesus himself was both afflicted and glorified. I'm going to end today with this quote from the famous 19th century preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And this is what he says, referring to this passage. 
There is great power in the witness of a consistent life. You may be bound to unsympathetic companions, but by how you conduct your life, you may win them for God. Your obstacle may become your pulpit. Christians who work for Christ when everything is against them, encourage others to look at the Savior in a new light. Listen to the cries of the people of this world. What are they? The successful business person cries, to me, to live is wealth. The scholar cries, to me, to live is knowledge. The soldier cries, to me, to live is victory. The young man cries, to me, to live is pleasure. The man desirous of recognition cries, to me, to live is fame. The high school student cries, to me, to live is recognition. We could go on and enlist all the voices of the world, but one is heard over them all. To me, to live is not wealth or knowledge or fame or glory, but Christ. Christ first, last, in the middle of everything and always Christ. So are you in the midst of struggles? This might be your pulpit. If you're in the middle of wrestling, in the middle of crisis, this might be your platform. This is your moment to preach to the world. That there is a joy that the world cannot take away. And there's a savior who will not leave your side. This is your moment to rejoice. And for God's moment to be glorified in your life. This is my encouragement. Don't wait for the storms to be over for you to worship. Don't wait for the trials to be behind you. For you to say that God is good. In the middle of it all. Let Jesus be your glory. Let Jesus be your treasure. Let Jesus be your reward and let him be your joy. Let the enemy hear your song in the middle of the battle, not after the battle is over. And may we all be able to say along with Paul, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. May God be exalted in my life and may God be exalted even in my death. May this be the story that God writes through our lives. I can't think of a better way to spend my life. I cannot, I cannot picture any more glorious purpose for this weak, frail life that I have. If this life can bring God a little bit of glory, add a little bit to that narrative of God's glory in the nations, then it has been well spent. So I'm going to ask Pastor JP and the praise team to come back up. And I'm going to close this in a time... Of prayer. I don't want to minimize some real pain that we might be going through, some real suffering, some real loss, real agony that we might be going through. I don't want to minimize that. And life will do that. Circumstances will do that. But what I do want to do is point us all to someone who transcends the pain of loss. Someone who's worth the pain of suffering. Someone who walked this walk even before we ever did. 
a God who for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, he went through suffering and affliction for you and I. It wasn't just a sense of responsibility and purpose. It was genuine joy in his heart as he laid down his life for you and I. This tells me that there is someone that is greater than our suffering. Someone who brings meaning and purpose to our suffering. And someone who walks with us the whole way. Even in those situations that we cannot make sense of. And so, Father, we come to you today as people who need your grace and your mercy over our lives. People that often get so myopic and tunnel visioned when it comes to our pain and our affliction. We get so blinded by our suffering that we forget to look up and find you there in the midst of it. Father, I ask that even in those moments, God, whether it's now or months down the line, in those moments of pain, in those moments of suffering, in those moments of loss and grief and affliction, Father, may we cling to you through it all. May we know, God, that you are enough for us. Your grace is sufficient to us in our moments of greatest weakness. That's when your strength shines through. May we know, God, that you are enough. That you are a God provider. You're a God who is a healer and a redeemer. A God who makes all things new. A God who's able to take our pain and make something beautiful out of it. May we be this kind of company of people. May we be this kind of church, this kind of family, this kind of congregation that proclaims your goodness and your grace in seasons where we are in the mountaintop and in seasons when we are in the valley. Through it all, God, may you have all the glory in our lives. We say that we love you. We say that we trust in you. And in all these things, God, may you and you alone get all the glory. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.